Welcome to this Sydney Ideas event. My name is Fenella Kernabone. I'm the Head of Programming uh, for Sydney Ideas right here at the University of Sydney. And we really thank you for joining us for this really important and timely conversation. And we hope, of course, here from Sydney Ideas and, and my team that you guys are all doing really well. It's pandemic fatigue, young people and mental health. What does lockdown 2.0 look like for younger people and how does it impact on their mental health? Before we begin the proceedings, though, I would firstly like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians on the lands on which we all live, meet, work and share ideas. The University of Sydney is built on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is located. And as we share our knowledge, our teaching, our learning and our research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge that is embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. It's now my pleasure to introduce you to your moderator who is going to welcome her guests and it is Professor Marie Thiessen. She is the director of the Matilda Centre and the chair of Australia's mental health think tank and she is our moderator. Would you please welcome her and thank you Marie, over to you. Thank you so much, Fenella, and welcome everyone to Sydney Ideas Conversation. I'm Marie Thiessen, and as Fenella said, I'm Director of Matilda Centre at University of Sydney, and I'm also Chair of Australia's Mental Health Think Tank. So, pandemic fatigue, we're all asking ourselves, will this never end? How do we cope? How do we live? How do we learn amongst the ongoing ongoingness? And that is the, that's the question that um, our panel today is going to work with us to address. What are those impacts? What is that panic and what is that fatigue? And then what are some of the ways that we can, um, uh, what some of the things that we can use to respond to that? So what are the impacts of the fear of the virus, the economic uncertainty and the isolation on our mental health? Clearly, we must physically distance because that's the way to keep ourselves safe from this virus. But in that physical distancing, it is really impacting on our social connections. And we are, when it comes down to it, social beings. We like to interact with each other and that's critical to our health and mental health. So I'm very fortunate to chair um, the Mental Health Think Tank and they recently reviewed the evidence and heard from over 2,000 Australians. And the four key findings were that Australia is facing a shadow pandemic of deteriorating mental health. So the feelings that we're experiencing around pandemic fatigue and the impacts of our mental health are felt by many people. And that's really important to acknowledge that the impact of the pandemic on mental health appears to have been disproportionately burdened on certain groups. And one of the really, one of the groups where that burden has fallen is young people in this country. And yesterday we saw data released showing increased self-harm amongst young Australians. The third one was around demand on our already overstretched service system. So we really want people to reach out, but we do know that our service system is really stretched in terms of its ability to respond to this intensified need. And finally, that our social connection really matters that the importance of the social connection and the disconnection we're feeling around shaping our mental health is becoming increasingly clear. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation today from everyone online and from our panel talking about these incredibly important issues for our future. So delighted to bring the panel together. 
We have Marley Bauer, who is joining us from the Matilda Centre. We have Lucy Brogdon, who is joining us uh, as the chair of the National Mental Health Commission. We have Pranita Shrestha, and Pranita is joining us from the School of Architecture, Design and Planning at the University of Sydney. And we have Swapnik Zanagavarapa, and Swapnik is from the Student Representative Council, and he's president of that council, and he's currently studying arts law at the University of Sydney. So thanks for joining us, Swapnik. Can I just start by asking our panel, and if I could just start with Lucy, how is the panel feeling on managing through this time? Look, Marie, I think it's um, quite fascinating to see this um, lockdown 2.0, as it's called in Sydney, or 5.0 if you're in Melbourne, or 1.0 if you're in Orange. Um, we're all at various stages of the, the lockdown and the pandemic process, but the fatigue element is certainly very real. And uh, we were just speaking anecdotally uh, the other day that last time we locked down, we were all sharing funny videos of lockdown. We were showing our cooking and our baking and our cleaning. Now we just couldn't be bothered. You know, we've really retreated. And I think that's a, a real sign of the fatigue. There's no fun in this one. It's a hard, it's a slog. And if we look at the data, it's telling us that people are finding it not just a slog, but something that's really causing distress that we can talk about a bit more later. Thanks, Lucy. Um, Sopnik, what's your take on and how are you uh, feeling this pandemic? Yeah, thanks, Marie. I, I think Lucy summed it up pretty well. It, it's hard not to feel a, a little bit of deja vu this time around. I, I feel, you know, given the timing of all of this as well, it really does feel like a repeat of last year. And, you know, there was some novelty to it last year and we were all in the spirit of you know we're going to get through it we're going to you know get through all of these lockdowns and then we'll be over the over the hills and we'll be all good um and, and coming back to a second big lockdown is is definitely something that i think that i and many other people my age were not prepared for i think we were all ready to settle back into the prime years of our life and knowing that you know we're going to have to put just another hold on all those plans that we have and and all the grand ambitions that you know, people my age do have about their lives, I think is, is quite dispiriting. Thanks, Swapnik. And Pranita? Thanks, Marie. I think I've got my second dose of vaccine, so that's a relief. I'm a bit relieved this time, but the challenge for me is homeschooling. So that's really get, getting to me this time because um, I think I can teach anyone except my own daughter. So that's that's definitely come out very strongly and I do miss my parent like my family back home which is which has really really resonated this time because um, as you know there's the pandemic has hit our part of the world very hard and it's hard where's, to, where's back home Renita um, back home is Nepal so it's hard yeah yeah thanks thanks so much for um for uh, bringing that into the conversation because we have such a community of connection around the world and that's actually been one of the things that this has really impacted upon. And Marley, just briefly reflecting on how the feeling or managing through this time. Yeah, I think, um, well, I found it really, really hard. Um, look, I didn't have a particularly raging social life to begin with pre-pandemic, but I think the loss of, um, I think I've just realised how much of my kind of happiness comes from meeting new people, hearing out new ideas, going to new places. And I think I've done the same walk almost route every day for the last three, four weeks. I feel like I'm going pretty insane, but I am getting a lot better 
well, I have a much closer relationship with my dog now, so that's a plus. But otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> Marley, you've just picked up on um, one of the strategies, which we'll talk about later on, but that really actively doing things, being active in the face of um, the ongoing ongoingness. So um, we had many, many questions come through um, to the panel before we uh, even started today. And so we've tried to bring those together to in different sections so that we can understand some of the reflections that the audience wanted us to have. So one of the ones we want to really reflect on at the moment, and um, Swapnik, you pointed to this in the way that um, you expressed your experiences, was that young people are faring much worse in lockdown than other people and other groups. And maybe one of the reasons for this is because of the disruption that occurs at such a formative time of our lives or their lives. So that time, as you said, where you're making friends and you're thinking about how you're going to enter the world. I don't know if you want to expand on that just before we start, but then I'd like to ask Marley if she could reflect on some of the impacts and the data that she's seen. So Swapnik, do you just want to talk first? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, as I, I've already mentioned, um, it is sort of the prime years of our lives that that are being lost a, lost a little bit to this lockdown. Um, I think, you know, so much of who we are as people get shaped in, in this period of, of our, you know, social and cultural um, development. And I think, you know, losing so many formative aspects of that is not really easy. And I think it really does affect um, young people in a very distinct way. You know, a lot of the experiences that you would like to have as a young person, you know, friendships and relationships and, you know, the ability to travel and things like that, all of these very, very culturally ingrained informative experiences a lost for you know a, you know a significant subset of people um i also think you know perhaps it's just me and i'm you know i'm a real extrovert but i think a lot of people my age really thrive on on social interaction and social connection and losing things like you know going to university and having the ability to bump into people you know and have you know random conversations and that sort of incidental contact i think is that, that, that I think is so important to, to young people's development. Losing all of that is really difficult and it, you know, it definitely does impact people's mental health quite significantly. Thanks, Swapnik. And Marley, could you talk about what you found in the data and the insights that you've seen from the work that you've been doing? Yeah, so um, I have kind of two sources of data on this, um, thankfully. So one is one that I know you're very familiar with in particular, and I had the opportunity as part, working as part of the, um, I suppose, the, so the team supporting the think tank to synthesise all the research we've had in Australia around the impact of COVID on mental health. And we found that as a whole, young people, had much worse mental health outcomes, so in anxiety, depression, loneliness, and distress more broadly than any other age group. And that's really concerning. I think um, there's something going on there. And for some, that lasted beyond the pandemic, uh, you know, the kind of height of lockdown restrictions. So, we also, I also have another source of data, which is um, the Learn Together study, a longitudinal study of over 2,000 Australians nationwide um, over several years, trying to understand what the determinants of um, uh, changing in mental health and substance use is. And 
We found several things. I think, first of all, um, we found generally that people who were going through a transition point in their lives when COVID hit were much worse off than other people. And if you think about young people, they are, there's a time of many, many transitions. And they're not just, you know, in everyday transitions. They're the big ones, as Fopnik was saying, you know, so it's things like moving from um, school to, to uni or work, um, moving out of home, having your first adult relationships, um, making making friends for the first time that might be your people, you know, the people that are your tribe and, you know, they're kind of relationships that foster belonging and, we know from network theory they're also the kinds of relationships that help keep you well and they also help um, you often with you know getting opportunities for jobs later on and these things are so important for our mental health um, you know our, our parents did it our siblings did it and then it's time you know for people to experience that and they're missing out and as Fopnik was saying yes there's lots of incidental connections because it's that shared experience that the kind of fun and um the fun and the novelty and the kind of unusual things that you share on day-to-day um, uh, periods, like sitting next to someone in a lecture and, you know, having a terrible lecture of experience and just laughing and going, oh, my God, is it just me here or <laughs> is it everyone? You, those are the things that you remember. It's not the Zoom call where you kind of were there, you know, virtually side by side. I can see Lucy laughing at that. Sorry, Marley, I kept went over you. I can see Lucy laughing at that. I'm wondering about her um, lecture experiences and whether she wants to share them. Look, uni was a fantastic time, but I'm also laughing because it's it's not just that. It's the workplace incidental experiences. It's the mm-hmm. social club incidental experiences that we've taken for granted for so long and now appreciate are the real goal of our professional social relationships. I think um, just quickly before we go on, I also want to stress that I think that the another reason why this group is so particularly impacted is because the government restrictions that help to kind of constrain infection, while so important for especially in Sydney and Victoria and South Australia at the moment, um, are particularly uh, impactful to the everyday lives of young people. So, you know, the things that young people tend to do, things like travelling and, and, you know, meeting lots of new people and being in large groups, you know, um, but also working in kind of casualised workforces uh, around um, kind of retail, hospitality, entertainment. These are things that are quick to shut down and open up. And um, I know that Swapney is going to talk about that later as well, but I think there are reasons and Marley, a lot of the information we have is around, you know, young people who were sort of older adolescents through to um, early 20s. But um, certainly the data in the UK is showing that the impacts are on even younger young people. So five through to um, 16. And Pranita, I know you mentioned, you know, you've got a 10-year-old who you're homeschooling. So, you know, I know we're using the, per- the term young people, but we really are talking about quite a broad, a broad group of people. Pranita, just before I throw to you, could I just throw to Lucy and ask Lucy your comments, Lucy, on, you know, how young people are faring, you know, much worse within lockdown and what experiences you've had? Uh, well, I have a, a small sample of three in my own household <laughs> that I'm managing, 13 to, to 17. But, you know, the data is bearing out that our, our small sample of three is not unique. Um, we're seeing that, you know, 30% of young people are reporting high and very high levels of psychological distress at the moment. And um, that's something that as a community we need to collectively come together and support and manage those young people their families and their support networks. It's a, 
a really powerful time, I think, and a very emotional time um, and, and a somewhat unique for us to all navigate as whether that's parents, as teachers, as, as friends, um, and as the young people themselves. How do we best get through this? 30%, it's quite confronting, isn't it? It's, it's very confronting, and that's the latest data from the, the ABS Household Survey just out this week. Um, Pranita. Um, Marley, Swapnik and Lucy's touched upon all of these, but um, I can definitely say for myself that lockdown 2.0 has been difficult for my daughter, at least. She's like, when can I go back to school all the time? And um, just that incidental sort of mixing with their peers is so important, even for like a 10, 11 year old. It's very important. And she says, you remember what happened in the earlier lockdown. We don't want the same thing. So <laughs> there's a lot of family dynamics there. So, but I think it's, it's hard for, for everyone. Also think, you know, we've been talking about the individuals and how it's impacting on the individuals, but the pandemic of all events impacts across our whole society. And I know, you know, Pranita, you come at it from the built environment and Swapnik from the um, housing insecure. I'm just wondering if we could touch on some of those issues now as well, that COVID and ongoing lockdowns, they really disappear. Um, disproportionately affect sections of society and we've talked about young people but it's also women, people of colour, people already experiencing disadvantage. So yeah just to explore some of those issues with the panel around um, you know asking Swapnik could you talk about the impact of insecure work and housing on people? Sure yeah um look young people work predominantly in um, very casualized industries uh, particularly in things like hospitality, which of course are the, the first casualties of any lockdown because of course you can't go out and go to the pub and, you know, all of the other things that you would normally do. And that means that for a lot of young people, because of the casualized nature of their work and because of how susceptible they are to, you know, changes in, in consumer demand, they're the, the first ones that are losing income anytime um, one of these lockdowns comes around. Um, and, you know, of course, there is a, a social need for these kind of lockdowns. And, you know, we need to, uh, I'm, I'm sure the public health advice is to enforce them as much as is needed. But the problem is that um, there's not really adequate support for these people if and when they do lose their work. Um, the first time around, we had JobKeeper. JobKeeper was, of course, very good and helped a lot of people weather the storm. But for a lot of casual workers, i.e. young people, there was eligibility requirements for how long you'd have you've you've you'd have to be a, a casual worker before you were able to access it. This time around, in order to access the income supports that are um, that are being rolled out, you can't be receiving any other transfer payments um, from from the government in any way. And that means for a lot of people who are on things like youth allowance or job seeker, you know, they're not able to um, access any of this pandemic relief. And that's that's quite unfortunate. Um, you know, the SRC has has launched a campaign as of today to to get a payment of $750 per week to every person that's lost work and to raise the rate of job seeker to $80 a day. Um, I also think one of the other aspects of this is the extent to which young people are in rental accommodation. You know, with the kind of ballooning rents that we're seeing, and I'm sure Pranita can talk about it a little bit more, um, that takes up significant portion of people's disposable income. And, you know, 
without things like rent, um, without things like eviction moratoria and rent reductions, it's very hard for people to get through this without being significantly financially impacted. So, Pranita, you know, is that the experience that you know young people really do um, experience that um, uh, housing uh, challenges with housing affordability and challenges with housing insecurity? I think building on Swapnik's point on um, housing insecurity, um, the commodification of housing and labor has been there even before the pandemic. What the pandemic has done is added a layer of another layer of vulnerability, which is health onto that. And I think um, in terms of um, in terms of like um, young students, if we say international students, um, the challenges, most of them, like we said, there's rental stress. So a lot of them would live in shared accommodation, which is, which has, which is an issue with the pandemic. And I think, um, that adds another layer of, oh, will I get COVID because I'm sharing my room with so many people? It's an overcrowded, less ventilated, poor kind of um, accommodation because I think the meaning of home has become so important now with the pandemic that you are supposed to be safe and sort of secure in your home. But if you're living with a lot of people because you want to save rent, um, the anxiety sort of increases with the pandemic, um, and uh, with with our research, current research with um, with my supervisor, Professor Nicole Goran, we're looking into these kind of housing conditions, and we work also with Marley in terms of how um, so to sort of uncover these kind of uh, precarious housing conditions. I think that's that's one of the key challenges. Just picking up on that, that you, you know, added on that it's not just the housing insecurity that's laid over the top now, it's also the health insecurity. And earlier on, you said, you know, I've had my second dose of vaccine and, you know, I've had my second dose of AstraZeneca as well. But it's pretty tough for young people when they can't get access to the doses. Lucy, I don't know if you want to speak to that. It's interesting, Marie, and I'm not um, up to speed on if there are particular studies, but what we've seen in terms of the interventions that have developed over um, the last 12 months to really support people living on their own um, are quite interesting and really um, a lot of innovation. In my community, one of the groups came together and got a network of volunteers to do assertive outreach calls, not just to old people, but to young people. And they signed up the young people to be the callers and the feedback on that little micro group was that the callers got more out of it than the, the people they were calling. So I think um, if you are feeling that sense of isolation, there are lots of groups looking for people to participate in some incredible community support that can be done over the telephone, online, you know, too much Zoom, but at least you're connecting and contributing. Um, I noticed the government the other day is calling for more contract contact traces. There are opportunities for people to be part of moving forward. And I think that's a really helpful approach to take. How can I be part of moving forward? Yeah. Be physically be physically distancing but and using our safe practices to ensure that the virus doesn't spread. But yeah, how do we how do we feel safe and comfortable to move out? It's been a, an amazing conversation that we've had. I do want to throw to a question that came through from the audience um, before we started the panel. Um, 
and then after that, we will go into some practical um, strategies and uh, tips. But that um, question came through from G. Campbell, and it was, what are some practical tips and strategies to support young people feeling um, virtually connected via social media, but disconnected from meaningful real-life friendship groups? So, Marley, do you want to talk about um, technology as a divider, but also maybe as a helper? Yes, um, sure. So I think um, loneliness, as we are talking about earlier, has increased during the pandemic, especially in these lockdown periods for so many people. But I think that that's a really normal response to what is a really abnormal situation. And actually, loneliness can be seen more as an alarm system or like a kind of um, social thermostat kind of thing that allows you to kind of recognise in your life, okay, where am I feeling that social lack and then where can I go to try and fulfil it and and try and reconnect in that way? Um, so, yes, we do have a few less options available to us in the kind of things that we're able to kind of go and do um, with people, but we can kind of work around using the tools that we have. Um, I think that one thing that we are, I think, we have to acknowledge that Zoom fatigue, the irony of us all being on it right now, is very real. <laughs> no one wants to be at the Zoom at the end of the day. Um, but I think that um, going back to what I was talking about before, yeah, the incidental chat, like the kind of shared experiences is really important. So there are things you can do now like um, teleparty, like watching movies together virtually, um, you know, kind of calling someone when you go for a walk, um, playing games on line with people in a way that you can talk to them at the same time it's really important you know it's a good way to feel like you're sharing an experience while you're not actually sharing it and making new memories um but I also think that there is something to be said for the old-fashioned kind of connection that can be made by um you know sending a letter to someone or an email um because let's face it none of us have any good gossip at the moment nothing's happening in our lives but you can get that kind of more intimate connection when you do sit down and kind of draw out a letter and it's also really special to receive. So I think that's a kind of something I've been doing and something that I think can be really helpful. Thanks, Marley. I think that is also part of the fatigue that we're feeling, that it is hard to engage those strategies. The first time around, we had the adrenaline and we had the novelty of them. Second or third or fourth or fifth time around, it's a bit of a, a bigger hill to climb. But I am hearing everyone telling me we've got to climb that hill. So I do also um, have a question from Diana um, Nawara. And Diana asks, are there any studies on coping mechanisms of young people who live alone, have no partners or any family nearby during lockdown? And is there a difference in mental health between young people living alone versus in a shared house with a partner? Lucy, I might just, if that's okay, throw to you because, you know, you and I live within the mental health field. We've been in it for a lot of years. So we've got a really good set of skills about how to reach out, but that's not actually the case for everyone. So, you know, that idea about, well, you know, what coping mechanisms, what levels of support are out there for people? Maybe you could just touch on that. That's right, Marie. And there are a range of services. You know, your GP, as we always say, is often the good starting point if you feel like you need more help. But, you know, we, are, we do have a range of great supports in this country that are online through MindSpot. Um, there's some really good apps that are very evidence-based. And, and if you go to the reputable hubs to, to look for those, you're on a good place of, of holding some safety and holding some support until you can get to the next level of care. Yeah, yeah I really love seeing the uh, doctor healthcare worker. 
giving support to the movement, which is adopt a healthcare worker. And um, I know, Marley, you just gave some great tips and people are asking for them. So we will make sure we'll pop all of those at a later stage. Marley. Yeah, I just wanted to say a few things. Um, so we didn't, from our sample, which is, um, you know, not fully representative, but a good, a good sense, I suppose, is we didn't actually find a difference between the mental health of people living alone um, or together amongst the young populations. But that's not to say that there isn't an effect on an individual level. And so there are a few things there that I think are important. I think that um, New South Wales will take an approach out or a leaf out of the Victorian book and allow for bubbles for people living alone, a, a social bubble, a friend bubble, rather than just the intimate partner bubble, allowing for the fact people can be single and living alone and want to connect. Um, but I also think um, I wanted to comment on a study that we have coming out this week from the Alone Together study, um, which is also just as Pradita was talking about, looking at the impact of housing um, on mental health during COVID. But one thing we found was that neighbourhood belonging was really important, above and beyond a lot of the existing problems um, people have in their lives, so income, um, existing mental health issues. But if you feel like you belong in your neighbourhood, your mental health is a lot better. So I think you have to look contextually, not just whether people are living alone or in, um, in um, bigger groups, um, but where they live and how they live can be important. And yes, you can be in a share house, but if you're living in a share house with people that you find stressful or you don't get along with, that can be even more isolating than if you um, are living alone. So it's all very contextual. Amalia, I can see Pranita really nodding with that one. Did you want to add in there, Pranita? Just wanted to bring in that international lens where um like visiting friends and family can be almost impossible in the near future for many international students or even staff for that matter of fact. But I think um, it's important to connect emotionally to people um, very much so in this time because I feel it like I really feel that uh, being far away and not being able to go back as and when you want can be really, really challenging to connect with family. And I think um, that was, we sort of, I think that is a challenge, definitely. So one of those things is about keeping motivated, isn't it? I'm wondering if Swapnik can talk, you're an arts law student, Swapnik, in the middle of a pandemic. And what strategies are you using to keep motivating, if I can put you on the spot? Um, look, I hate to be put on the spot here because I, We'll have to say that not all of my strategies have been very effective, but um, look, I think at the end of the day, um, getting through uh, sort of this pandemic is, is difficult and there's no harm at all in, in acknowledging that there are difficulties in it. You know, I've certainly had my ups and downs with getting through, you know, each of my semesters. And for people who are watching right now who are at university, people who are doing their HSC, all of that. I'm sure it is, you know, remarkably difficult, but I, I do find that things like setting small goals and at the end of the day, um, you know, part of my motivation is simply the fact that I don't really have much else to do. Um, I'm sort of forced into doing my work and forced into, you know, trying to get through all of it purely by virtue of the fact that I can't really do much else or, or go anywhere else. Um, I wanted to add, though, just sort of two dimensions to this, discussion that we've just had. The first one, which Pranita already mentioned, is the international student dimension. Um, so many of the strategies that, that we're talking about here 
sort of rely on the assumption that people already have existing networks in this country and, you know, networks that they can easily and quickly and reliably access through, you know, online means as well as being able to return to them. But for a lot of international students who might have just come at the very start of the pandemic and haven't had a chance to go back or they're still sticking around, that's a very difficult thing to do. And especially, you know, if um, English is your second language or if you haven't had a chance to go to university yet and you've just been sitting in front of a Zoom screen, that's a really hard thing to have, that kind of community. Um, The second aspect of it also, I think, um, is the, uh, you know, extent to which people that are facing intimate partner violence or domestic and family violence uh, are sort of, you know, really disproportionately disadvantaged by this kind of lockdown. Um, I know that, you know, there are a lot of compassionate exceptions for for lockdowns, but one of those is, of course, people who are facing this kind of family violence, but it, you know, doesn't make the situation any easier and it doesn't make social connection and doesn't make any of these coping strategies um, any easier. And I think that really speaks to some of the structural issues that, that go back to what we've been talking about, about different people experiencing this lockdown differentially. It's not equally experienced. And, you know, just following Lucy, yes, I was about to throw to you. Go on. Just to <laughs> follow on from Pranita and, and Swapnik, I think, and, and I know we've got a lot of communications listening in today. Some of the research we did through my Sydney Women's Fund shows that people in the community want to join and participate but they often don't know how, and that that might be for a raft of reasons. They're new to the country, they're new to the community. And so I think it's a a real strong message to these people running programs. Don't assume people will come to you to volunteer. Make sure people know that there are opportunities and really reach out with your opportunities as much as the service itself. Um, Let people know you're looking for people with language to do some of this assertive outreach. Mm. Really make sure people know you're there with a service that that is looking for participants. And just following on from what Swapnik was saying, you know, one of the things that um, has really been highlighted in the recent data that you talked about that was released yesterday was the demand on clinical services, that our clinical services are really, really important as as one of the most important planks in actually ensuring that we have a mentally healthy society. And they are under a lot of pressure. Um, you know, we need to do, we need to make sure we keep uh, an eye on making sure we have high quality and that we also have adequate access to high quality care. So I know you're nodding with me there. Um, and we talk a lot about the community responses, but it's also important to balance that up with actually, you know, if you are experiencing anxiety and depression, gets to the point that you need help, you've got to work out how to get it, but it's important to reach out for it. And we will put up um, links and access to clinical services, to um, helplines and and some guidance for people if they are listening online and they're feeling like they're wanting to reach out for care. Um, the other spot you can go is um, the Matilda uh, website um, also has some guidance as to how you can navigate your way through to those care that care. Okay, so thank you so much um, for all of those questions. I'm looking at the time and I know that we're getting loads of questions coming through and I would um, really like to um, head now to some more questions from the audience. And So what are your top three wish list government responses to protect young uh, mental health right now? Marley, do you want to talk about what came through the think tank as a response to the COVID, not necessarily specifically to young people? 
So we uh, asked people in this group of 2000 to talk about what they kind of thought were the main issues in mental health post-COVID in Australia at the time. And it was really interesting. Um, so Yes, we kind of assumed, or I kind of assumed, I should say, that a lot of the anxiety and fear and depression around COVID would be around fear of infection or um, the infection of loved ones. But the, um, And that was a little bit about it, of what people were experiencing. But otherwise, one of some of the main kind of pathways to poor mental health were the social um, aspects, so that social disconnection from um, the social institutions, networks, which you really value, um, like at a neighbourhood and a community level. And on the other hand was the economic, the fear of economic um, downturn, of not being able to pay to uh, for housing, to not be able to um, kind of exist in the way that you're accustomed and that your family is accustomed to. And so we start to see that there are these main kind of realms, the economic and the social, which are really important. Um, so I think that uh, any kind of government intervention would need to be um, in those areas. Um, we also, um, a big thing that people talked about was the service system, which is um, we know was already strained before COVID happened. And now it's in even more of a kind of um, area of crisis and stress and the recent budgetary, um, uh, well, increase in, in service delivery is is great, but it needs so much more than that to get to what we need to. And can I just add, because I'm also a housing tragic, that I think that we need to have better housing outcomes or and available affordable housing outcomes available for young people because we know that people, especially people with an existing mental health issue, need a stable place to live um, in order to have it, to recover well and have good mental health. And at the moment, there's just not that available. And we know that that's a precursor for bad mental health, particularly during COVID. Hey, Pranita, um, do you want to jump in there? And then I'm going to throw to Swapnik. I think affordable housing should have been on top of the agenda even before the pandemic. But I think pandemic's given us the reason to make it like prime issue because um, housing and health are very, very much interrelated. Now it's the pandemic shown that. Um, but I, I think I'd also like to um, add and sort of um, respond to an earlier event that we had around COVID in India and Nepal because the scale of COVID was so different in those contexts and the impact of mental health on people has been drastic. Like it's been so different in terms of like uh, kids losing both parents. How do you, what do you do there? So I think it's, it's a bit of um, it, the more we read about international cases and how COVID has actually impacted people in other countries and where there is absence of government support in many cases, how do they deal with it? I think that those are the things that could sort of give us inspiration to move on because we do, we are in a privileged situation at the moment, I think. So that ways, I think you, you put perspective to a lot of things. So I just thought that could be something that um, we should be uh, grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. Pranita Swapnik. Yes. Uh, three government responses. Um, I think the three in my mind are quite clear. The first one is, you know, multiple things packaged into one. So apologies if that's cheating in answering this question. Um, <laughs> we'll allow but, you a cheat. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to have one today. Um, the The first one I think is uh, really, I think, designing and rebuilding a much more 
just and wide-ranging set of supports for people that are being disadvantaged by this uh, lockdown, but also I think using this as an this crisis as an opportunity to reconsider, you know, the the kind of economic and social policy that we have in this country. What that means in my mind is the stuff that I mentioned earlier that we're campaigning about about seven hundred and fifty dollars a week, you know, direct payments to people who are affected by the lockdown, but also raising the rate of job seeker to eighty dollars a day so that people aren't living in poverty just because they're, you know, moving from job to job in what's already a quite loose labor market. Um, and I think that kind of broad ranging welfare state policy, you know, really tightening labor markets and rebuilding the welfare state in this country is right up there in terms of what's going to improve people's mental health to the extent that that's linked to the economic side of things, as Mali already mentioned. Um, I think the second one is better investment in mental health resources. Um, we've already mentioned across the board, you know, the strain that's being put on the clinical side of it. And, you know, mental health issues are obviously socially contingent, but there's also a clinical element to them. And there's no denying that clinical help can be really useful. But that infrastructure is really, really stretched. It's very difficult to navigate for young people. I think simplifying it and really, really increasing its capacity is the only way forward. And I think the third thing um, that's part of what really impacts young people's mental health, but I, I'm not sure has really been touched on yet, which is the issue of the vaccines generally. And I think improving and accelerating the vaccine rollout is, is one of the few things that will make people feel better through all of this because they know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. But if they can't access the vaccines and, you know, all the hesitancy about, you know, which vaccine to get, all of that stuff really impacts on people's mental health because they just don't know when this is going to end. Thanks for that. And that really picks up on what Lucy was saying, that, you know, as someone who's had both shots of um, AZ in my arm, I just really feel almost that um, the guilt and despair that as an older Australian I can get it, but as a younger, as a 30 or 40-year-old, I couldn't. So anyone bump on in if you want to if you want to add any uh, more to the um, three wish lists. I think we've covered a, a phenomenal number of things. I might pop on to the next question now, um, and it's a really interesting one. Do the high levels of digital connectedness among young people have a mitigating effect on experiencing negative mental health impacts? Luke via Facebook. So thanks, Luke via Facebook. Um, and prior to the pandemic, I'm just going to throw a little bit of data into here beforehand. Prior to the pandemic, we had been looking at um, digital connectedness amongst young people, particularly 13, 14 and 15-year-olds. And um, we were really interested in whether um, digital connectedness had had an impact and screen time and passive screen time or types of screen times that had an impact globally on young people's mental health. And there's a there's a general sense if uh, you asked anyone over the age of, say, 40, what was wrong with our young people today, they would say to you, they spent too much time online. Um, so we were trying to pull apart, um, you know, is all digital um, good or is all digital bad? And the basic answer is all some digital is good and some digital is bad. Um, a lot of passive screen time, not so good for your mental health. But um, we found games and um, active involvement in the use of um, digital uh, 
online digital platforms was actually um, not didn't have a negative impact on young people's mental health. So do the high levels of digital connectiveness amongst young people have a mitigating effect on experiencing the negative health um, impacts? It depends on what sort of digital um, connection and digital we're talking about. But yes, they can actually be positive in terms of mitigating the effects um, on experiencing negative mental health impacts. So if anyone wants to bump in on that question and that answer, let me know. But otherwise, we'll pop on to the next one. How do young people Oh, sorry, Marley. Yeah, go. I was just going to say that we had a look at um, people's responses in Alone Together qualitatively to understand that question um, and found that, yes, that helped because people were already connecting in that way. So it was really easy just to streamline and connect in. Um, if you're already connecting that way, there's not much difference. But um, there are a few issues with that. Number one was the impact of media, like the constant barrage of negative COVID media was just a lot for people and screen times linked with that. Um, but also a really interesting effect that was particularly sad, I think, is that a lot of people um, when moving from pre-COVID to COVID, they did what a lot of us um, would have done which I know I did, is you, you're scared and you reach for those who you really love and you really value because you want to support them and you want them to support you. And that's fantastic. But what it left was people that might have been in the peripheries of friendship groups. And so what you're finding is that the people's relationships and friendship groups got really consolidated and strong and close, which is fantastic for them, but then left out these little extra people. And so for them, the digital thing didn't really translate because they the others weren't reaching out to them that same way. So I think there are winners and losers, and that's one of the sadder things that's come out of the pandemic. Thanks, Marley. Just popping on to the um, to the next question about um, how do young people cope with the fact that job cuts are happening everywhere, so companies aren't hiring? How do we enter the job market? Um, I feel like this is especially difficult because of how having a job can impact mental health. And um, Sopnik, you you really raised that question around you know having a job. Um, and how and having an income and how that impacts on your mental health. Do you want to have a first go at this question? Absolutely. Um, you know, I saw it flash on the screen and all of the bells in my mind were ringing because I think it really reflects um, a lot of the questions that we've been grappling with through the SRC. Um, and, you know, me as a political economy student have, has been grappling with academically. Um, I wish I had a silver bullet answer. I don't. Um, the, the, the truth of the matter is uh, over the past 30 years or so, uh, labour markets in this country have been extremely deregulated. In the name of flexibility, we've got a lot of casualization, but it also means that there's a lot of slack and people are underemployed. And in a crisis like this where there's, you know, not to get too technical, but there's not enough demand in the economy, uh, we get a lot of unemployment. The, the way around that is to use industrial policy, to use direct government intervention, to use government in investment to really get the labor market running hot so that people are able to get into jobs. Um, you know, full employment was, was once a very highly valued policy goal in this country. Um, and I think the pandemic has really shown us that it is time for us to return to full employment because you know, I have the same anxieties that this person is having about entering the job market. And I'm sure for people that aren't at university, that aren't receiving these, you know, very prestigious, you know, technical and um, intellectual, uh, you know, uh, recognitions, it must be much more frightening going out into the world, knowing that the, 
the kind of jobs that you can get and the amount of work that you can get is so limited. So really, it's a structural question that requires a really big policy response. So look, I, I do, um, you know, when I graduated last century, it was in the depression we had to have or the recession we had to have, and we all left uni being told that there were no jobs. And so I think there's an element in the cycle that kind of says there's that perception. But, you know, I've been talking to a number of, you know, just in one industry at the moment um, in the last week in professional services. And one big professional services firm in this country has 600 vacancies at the entry to to middle level. And so I think um, we have to be careful. And I'm not saying it's at an individual level, it's not challenging, but sometimes we have to challenge some of these um, messages out there that nobody's hiring, that there are no jobs. Now, I, I think I would struggle if you were coaching someone in to becoming a pilot, that that might be a challenging career entry mm. point. But, you know, we've seen some sectors that, that can't fill jobs at the moment. And so um, one of the skills that we know that is part of being a career skill for the future is that flexibility of thinking and openness to new ideas. And maybe our path is not the one that we thought we would have, but there's some activity in adjacent space. And and I think there's a role for for unis and various groups to, to really work with students to say, what's the path? How do we think creatively in this market? Because I'm meeting employers all the time who are looking for really good entry level people and and not getting the applicants that they think are out there. So there's a, a mixed message there and we need to challenge that. Now, to swap Nick's point, we do have some real issues in the structure of some work and, and I think we do have to have some big conversations around gig economy and and what Flex has done to the nature of work in this country. But um, I would try and put out a message of hope that there is a, there's a lot of work out there at the moment. And we, we only have um, five minutes to go. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to wrap us up. But in wrapping us up, there was a very important question um, on the screen here, which was around, given that there's no definitive end in sight and that this affects the mental health of young people or adults, not just young people, but it affects the mental health of everyone, how can we encourage those struggling when we also can't see the end of this pandemic? So I'm going to throw to each of the speakers of a final thought and, and in closing the event to get them to tell us one um, tip, one hint that they're using right at the moment to help them cope with exactly those feelings because we are in this together and we're trying to work our way through it. And I'm going to throw to Marley first. Yeah, thanks, Marie. It's a good question. Um, I think the most important thing is to recognise and acknowledge how you're feeling non-judgmentally. You're not alone. Um, You know, a lot of us are feeling pretty hopeless and um, low right now. But the first step to kind of decide to feel better is to kind of realise what you're feeling, reach out for help from friends or professionally. Thanks, Marley. Renita, what's your your hot tip to end our session? Thanks, Marie. Um, I think my hot tip is to engage. And um, as part of engagement, I would say routine is, although routine in lockdown might not sound the right way, but I think having, um, when I was reading, I was like thinking about, I do a lot of yoga. So waking up before the sun rises is quite crucial. So when you see the sunrise, you see that hope sort of go up and then doing one thing quite consistent every single day in the morning and then um, following a routine is quite important and getting fresh air. 
I think that those are the three main points. Oh, wonderful, Pranita. So that's really engaging in that sort of active coping and just not avoiding it, but making sure you do something every day. That's cool. Sopnik. I think one of the best strategies that I've found is trying to find alternate ways of engaging in social interaction. Um, Marley already mentioned things like teleparty. I'm a, I've been a convert since the last lockdown. Um, you know, just being able to do things like watching movies and TV with your friends and family, um, being able to, you know, play games online. Like my friends and I play Pictionary online all the time. Um, even little things like, as Molly mentioned as well, calling people when you go for a walk or, you know, sometimes uh, even during the semester, my friends and I would just call together and do our work silently uh, sitting on a screen across from each other. I think finding alternatives like that can really go a long way. Thank you, Swapnik. And I'm just going to throw my one in here because I know my um, my staff or my family will laugh when I say this, but my one is to try and switch off sometimes. So I absolutely make sure I watch the 11 o'clock you know, uh, news and tell me where I'm not allowed to go in Sydney or if I've been in a hotspot, but definitely try and switch off sometimes because – you know, in a time of uncertainty like this, you can I can find myself experiencing information overload. And we I think we all need to find ways to just switch off from the COVID-19 barrage. And I'm going to finish off by throwing to Lucy for your tip. So I think um, the, the key thing that, that's working for me and, and working, you know, that they say is working is to keep reaching out and Acknowledge it's okay to, to not feel okay, and that does seem to be as cliched now as you're on mute, but it is okay not to feel okay. And um, reach out. Reach out to a friend. Share. And often the best way to, to, to start sharing that um, is to share that vulnerability. I'm really struggling today. Can you just pump me up to get through the next meeting? Can And, and I'll be there to pump you up for the next meeting. We don't have to sort of get through for, for 100 days. If we can get through the day, we've done well, I think, at the moment. And and just sit there and reflect at the end of the day that we've we've done that. We've got through that day. We're, we're going to get up with the sunrise and, and take the hope for the next day. And if it's beyond our friend to carry us, reach out for, for other sort of sources of help and support because they are there and there are so many people. You know, we are a very caring community at the end of the day. And, and that gives me a lot of power, knowing there's care. You know, my life, our family have been knocked by a number of curveballs and I know the power of support. I know the power of getting handwritten letters and how uplifting mm -hmm. that can be. And if we are there for each other reaching out, we are so much stronger. And don't take it for granted. Don't assume. Just pick up the phone, write the letter and, um, and reach out. Yeah. Thank you, Lucy. And I've really, really enjoyed today our inter, our connection across the international, that we've, we've really thought not just about internally in Australia, but our connection across the globe. And that has actually brought incredible joy to me today because it's reminded me how much we are actually part of the rest of the world, even though we feel like we're fortress at the moment. Um, so we're coming up in time, but before we go, I really want to thank our speakers. I want to thank Marley, Lucy, Pranita, Swapnik, and 
you have all been so generous with sharing your time and your tips and answering all of these questions. Um, can I also thank everyone who joined us online today? Those questions were incredible. And um, we really, I really, really enjoyed seeing them and also hearing the answers that came um, through our discussion. So we'll post a link to the Sydney Ideas page, um, which is where you'll find links to resources we mentioned and a transcript of today's discussion. And um, please stay in touch and take care. So I'm Marie Thiessen um, from Matilda Centre at University of Sydney.